What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Welcome to Iraq Legacy of War, brought to you by Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Catherine Hughes. In this limited series, we're looking at the legacy of the war in Iraq 20 years after the US-led invasion in March 2003. Every day this week, we'll bring you a special episode. Join us as we look back at one of the most significant military interventions in modern history. And if you miss episodes one and two of the series where we discuss the road to war and the subsequent failures and chaos, do go back and listen now. On this episode, Renard Mansour, director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House, sits down with award-winning Iraqi journalist Haith Abdullahad, whose new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East's Long War, tells the story of two decades of conflict and the devastating impact these wars have had on civilians. Together they discuss how Iraqi citizens lost their country and the disappearing sense of Watan, a word that means the nation, the states and the homeland, all in one. This conversation was recorded in Chatham House in central London. Brother of a friend of mine was picked up from this street. He came to see some of his friends. Uh, he was a Sunni and he was uh, kidnapped in the street. For weeks, his relatives, his brothers and cousins tried to negotiate with the militia that kidnapped him, trying to get him released. They were bargaining over money and everything. By the time they reached a deal, kind of his body was found and he was killed two weeks earlier. He was 21 years old. He was kidnapped exactly here. Faith, welcome to Intelligence Squared. Thank you, Renat. If we can begin actually on, on sort of, you know, your personal journey through your accidental journalism, you become a world-renowned journalist with awards, but really you're trying to tell the stories of people through the illustrations and through your words. Yourself were born in Baghdad. Uh, your life changed. How did you begin to see just daily life change? How are these people, how, these characters, if we, if we can call them that in your book, many of them seem to have fluid identities. How, do, how did you sort of begin to grasp with some of these societal changes? So, you know, it is my city. I mean, I grew up in Baghdad. I knew Baghdad very well, 29 years of my life in Baghdad. I love walking. So I, I knew the map of the city very well. But as the war progresses, as we we have, um, you know, tanks down the streets, then you have the attacks against the Americans, the city itself transformed into a war zone. 
And then, of course, the militias come into the streets, the violence becomes sectarian and ethnic, and that in itself changes the, the topography of the, or the maps of the city. And suddenly this neighborhood, which I used to go walk in it all my life, is suddenly blocked by armed people, and I need someone on the other side of that neighborhood to vouch for me, to let me in. So the first fluid identity is mine. To negotiate these kind of checkpoints in the streets about that sectarian checkpoint, you need to acquire more than one identity card. One with, that can work on this side of the city and the other on that side of the city. Then, of course, when you grow up in the city, you under a totalitarian regime that has its own national historic myth. And that would tell you this is the, your history. And the change happens. It's huge change happens. This is like the upheaval of the war. And then suddenly there's a new narrative, a new narrative for the Iraqi state. We move from this one nationalist narrative into a narrative based on sectarian identity. And with that change of the narrative, the people themselves start changing. The people identities start changing. The neighborhoods start changing, especially the new neighborhoods that were built in the 70s. They didn't, they didn't have any characteristics. You know, it's given to upper middle class, middle class people, teachers, banker, whatever, doctors. Where they are in the geography of the city, they start acquiring sectarian identity. So the neighborhood to the west, which is closer to cities dominated by insurgents in Fallujah and Ramadi, acquire a a Sunni identity, while neighborhoods in the east, closer to this huge uh, suburbs of southern city, acquire a Shia identity. And then suddenly, once you have that, gradually you start having cleansing in these neighborhoods and people leave their, their houses. All of that creates this fluid identity in the city. So you need to be very careful of where you go and where you come. And you need to know that those men carrying guns at the end of that street, who are they? To which militia they belong? And so you start kind of looking into these details to help you. So these changes make you feel like you're now a stranger in, in, in Baghdad. And absolutely. I mean, I start with this moment in 2007, kind of sleeping in my hotel. And I'm trying, I'm desperate trying to find people in my own city who can help me negotiate. Because I became a stranger in my own city, a stranger who cannot move beyond a couple of streets without an escort from someone from that neighborhood. To an extent, we all Iraqis became strangers because of that war. Mm. And if you sort of move from the sort of physical changes to even the symbolic changes, uh, something that you discussed in your book is the sort of the iconic image of the toppling of the statue of Saddam Hussein, which was a prominent statue in, at the time. If we can go back, you know, a sense of what you felt at that time, what many Iraqis were feeling as this dictator, you know, uh, has been toppled quite sort of in, in, in a symbolic way. I was standing there in the square and I and I saw the toppling of the statue. Few Iraqis were trying to bring down the statue. They failed. The Americans come. They put their, you know, this big machine and they start pulling down the statue. And then one soldier puts this American flag on the face of the statue. And I think that is the iconic image that sealed the fate of this adventure. It's like you realize this is an occupation. This is not a something for about democracy or change or something. And I think that is the moment that sealed the fate of the invasion. But also the, you know, st statues start, not only Saddam's statues were toppled, but anything that was associated with Saddam. So work of art was, was toppled because that was built under Saddam. And we talk a lot about kind of statues these days and toppling statues. Um, the whole city 
the pictures, the statues and the city start changing, and new pictures started emerging, including, uh, you know, Shia clerics, Sunni clerics, symbols. These symbols were imposed on the city. And at one point, they wanted to topple a statue of, you know, the founder of Baghdad, Abbasid Khalifa, because he was associated in the kind of the new sectarian narrative with a certain aspects of history. So the changes went very deep into the into the fabric of the city. And an event that you sort of say in the book was a formative event that gave you an understanding of where your country was going was what happened on the 2nd of March 2004 in Karbala. And, you know, you write, I told myself I had to start taking pictures, but I couldn't. I was paralyzed by a sickening feeling that I was intruding on people in their most intimate moment when they were injured, hurt and dying. So if we can go back to that, and I know you say it's still very difficult memory to go back, but what happened and what did you begin seeing about your country and, and, and this democracy project? So it was the Ashura celebration in, in Kerbala and, and, you know, kind of the night before there was this kind of euphoria, ecstatic feeling of people flagellating themselves, sword, and shouting, and and chanting. And it's a very, very, um, I don't know, intense feeling because it's all about the martyrdom of Imam Hussein. It's all about shedding one's blood and crying. I was woken up by, by these explosions, and I go to the streets, and the night before, the people were covered in blood from their, you know, flagellations and then now you go into the street and you see these body parts limbs you know it was one of the biggest qaeda attacks on 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 shia pilgrims and and at that time i stood there kind of paralyzed by fear i mean those people this is the most intimate moment i felt in those people's life when they're injured when they're dying i i felt i couldn't carry my camera start taking pictures i tried i went through the motions and some there were iranians and a and, and a man shouts at me and i was relieved so i stood there shaken to the core you know but since then i stood in the scenes of so many car bombs after that that they're all mixed together in my head in in one real of the smells, the burning tires, the burning flesh, the, the smell of burning concrete. It's so similar in every single car bomb that they become all fused together in my head. And sadly, this is something that you've continued to sort of experience, you know, not just in 2003-04, but even as you, you worked and covered Iraq and Mosul. I, there's a story you have there as well from, a, I believe it was an IED. And, and so how do you personally, you know, it must, I, I can't even imagine how difficult it must have been. Yeah, it, it kind of becomes very difficult. I mean, the, the most difficult thing of it is not the emotional um, aspect of it, but how to not treated as a repetitive incident, how to give dignity, if I may say so, to every victim of every car bomb. It's not, oh my God, it's the same thing, it's the same tires and something. How to relive or retell the story every time afresh. That was kind of a huge challenge, especially sometimes you would see three, four, five car bombs a day in Baghdad. I mean, I had a favorite cafe. It's not really a cafe. It's a, you know, Chaykhan. It's a couple of benches on the side of the street. And that was bombed three times by suicide bombers. And every time I sit there, I say, there will not be another suicide bomber. And another suicide bomber comes to the same cafe. So that, the, the level of violence that we were going through. And of course, violence doesn't disappear from a society. 
So it builds up to the point where you have the Battle of Mosul and some of the worst atrocities committed in this war take place before Mosul and after because the insurgency that mutated to Al-Qaeda, mutated into ISIS, becomes so brutal that it shocks even the Iraqis who are used to this kind of violence. But but that brutality of ISIS is is faced by another layer, another force of brutality, because you know what ISIS did to the society, or what the violence did, or what the sectarian violence did to the Iraqi society, it generated a more violent response. So violence does not disappear from a society, but it kind of it creates its its opposite. And I think we're still living in this legacy of violence that started in, not even 2003, started even before, during Saddam's regime. This issue of sectarianism, if we can sort of look back, uh, if you ask anyone in the West, in Europe, in the US, if you mention Iraq, maybe one of the first things that they would think of is, oh, Sunni versus Shia or Kurd versus Arab. And these identities really, most people became the way that they understood Iraq. But of course, in the book, you say that wasn't always the case. And this is, as you're saying, this was something that was part of a process of, you know, changing neighborhoods or militarizing, you know, sectarianism, as you say. But why was it that the story of Iraq, because these people, the reason why they think this outside of Iraq is because they've read news reports of this. And there was a lot of foreign coverage of Iraq. And you talk about this sort of the big question of a, you know, the journalist coming to Iraq, this country he or she hasn't, does not, does not know much about. And the first question is, are you Sunni or Shia? How did that happen? And how did that affect the way that people view the country? I mean, the answer is because it's simple. It's very, you know, journalists come to a country rather than understand the complexities of this country, the social structure, the tribal structure. They see it in this kind of very binary, simplistic way of a black and white, Sunni and Shia, Hutu and Tutsi, uh, Croatian, Serbia. It's a very easy way to understand that kind of conflict. The idea the sectarian identity of the conflict was created back in the 90s when groups of Iraqi exiles wanting to to create support for the Iraq war played on that card. I mean, Saddam oppressed the Kurdish people who wanted separation, independence, rightly so. And that was an ethnic conflict of an ethnic nature. Saddam had executed, killed, exiled tens of thousands of Shia political activists he oppressed them and he killed them because of their um, religious political movement. In the 90s, the threat to the regime started coming from religious Sunni quarters because that's when you start you see the spread of the Salafis in the region and, and then there's a threat. So Iraq had a complex conflict. The regime had complex conflicts with its people. And of course, some of these conflicts had acquired a sectarian political. But the main factor in the Iraqi society, as I grew up, was not the sectarian identity of people. Social class, regional factors, all these played a much bigger role in identifying a person. And I still play this game in my head of going back to all the kids who were in my class in, my, in high school. And we had three names only. So we didn't even have carry surnames because the regime wanted to create this kind of socialist version. And I try to identify who's a Sunni and who's a Shia. And you know, 20 years later, I still fail in identifying half of the class, which I'm very happy with, I'm very proud of, because 
That means we didn't have a sectarian identity. I did play with someone because he was a Shia or didn't play with someone who, because he was a Sunni. And then I started working as a translator and news assistant. And I remember my how shocked I was when I had to translate the question posed by a, by a journalist to a, to a family in a, living in a Baghdad suburb. Are you a Sunni or a Shia family? And I didn't understand why was he why was he asking that question? Because in his head, he wanted to separate them. Are you a victim or a victimizer? And of course, what that creates, this narrative of black and white and a victim, a victimizer create. If one part of the population are victims, then the rest of the population are victimizers, which is a recipe for a disaster, a recipe for a civil war. You take a whole chunk of the population, put them in a corner and point a finger at them and label them as, you know, collaborators or Nazis or something. And that was where this sectarian conflict started. I don't want to insinuate that there is no um, sectarian identity to some of the Iraqis. I don't want to say that there is no conflict between Sunnis and Shia. Some of the neighborhoods of Baghdad, some of the oldest neighborhoods of Baghdad had witnessed these kind of confessional conflict. But that was not the narrative of Iraqis. But once you add the layer of sectarianism to the occupation, and like all occupiers, the Americans would use one part of the population to fight another part, like the British did in India or other places, it's natural to progress from there to civil war. And if you, you know, if you think about this, this topic that you bring up, Watan, in the story of the school teacher, Ustad Ali, who says, as quoted in the book, as a teacher, I think the worst thing that is happening is that the student defines himself only by his sectarian identity. He is a Shia from Sadr City or from Bay'a. There is no Watan, no nation anymore. So even in the school systems, in education, you have this sectarianization of a generation, but you also had resistors. And I think the story of, of someone like Estad Ali from the book uh, is, is, is important to, to show what the consequences of trying to, to push back against this sectarianism. Of course, a, a lot of people in Baghdad try to push against this whole dominant sectarian and still they're trying to do, and, and I'm sure we'll talk about this later, but Tishreen, the uprising that took place in the streets of Baghdad in 2019-20, that was a reaction against the sectarian narrative. But to go back to the early days, you know, the idea of a Watan started crumbling back in the 90s under the sanctions when, because Saddam had soiled these words, kind of the Watan became synonymous with Saddam, words like patriotism, Watan flag, nationalism, they all were so destroyed by Saddam himself because he used them to legitimize whatever thing he was doing. So the people were the people were fed up with these with these words come 2003 and of course the fragmentation of a society the biggest victim in the fragmentation is the, the this kind of supra kind of sectarian identity the watan shrinks smaller and smaller first it's the tribe then the clan then the tribe then the sect then the neighborhood itself and that becomes the limits of your watan you know from one street to another that is your watan is just this neighborhood and it took many, many years for another idea of a homeland, of a Watan, to emerge as a consequence of the, of the fight against ISIS. I think, you know, if we can skip ahead, because Watan and Narid Watan, we want a, 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 a homeland, a, a state, becomes the slogan 
of the October 2019 Tishreen movements, the protest, as you, you know, and, and, and in the epilogue, you, you go through speaking to this new generation. These are Iraqis who don't really remember anything before 2003, who were denied a homeland. And as you say, in 2019, when they went to the streets of Baghdad or the south to protest, they didn't say, we want to remove Maliki, we don't want to remove this prime minister, Abadi, Adil Abdelmadi. They said, we want a homeland and we want a new system. How did that, you know, as you do, you know, you write your reflections and you see how this idea of a homeland for Iraqis has developed in the last 20 years, how does that make you feel? Do you feel hopeful that there is a reimagination of this new generation for something different than what they've only known? So, in Reed Watan becomes this kind of rallying cry of this new generation. And as you say, it's a, it's a generation of you know, late teens, early 20s, they remember little of Saddam and they remember little of, of the first days of the war. But it's a generation that grew up in this whole fragmented sectarian identity. I think it took that generation nearly 15 years to come to realize that it's these political actors have been manipulating these kind of sectarian identity for their own goals. It's not that the Sunnis don't have electricity and the Shia have electricity in Baghdad. It's not like the Shia have access to services and the Sunnis don't have. They woke up at one point and realized that all Iraqis have been betrayed. The wealth of a nation has been stolen by a, a small clique of, of corrupt politicians, militia commanders, you know, and people in, who benefited from this kind of state. And there was so much anger. And I think up until today, the one thing that all Iraqis of all ages and creeds, ethnic backgrounds and sectarian backgrounds agree on is their hatred to the ruling political class. So there was that moment in 2019 when people poured into the streets. And, you know, I've seen wars. I've seen violence. I have seen so much that to a certain extent, you know, my emotions have are shielded. And I, I know how to negotiate the worst massacres without making it affect me. But when I went to the streets and I saw this old woman making sandwiches and giving it to the people, when I saw families bringing their children into the street, when I see an old man, a school teacher standing with the kids, you know, I would walk in, in this Tahrir Square and I would be crying, like tears pouring down my face because I'm not used to this other side of Iraqis, this, this solidarity amongst the people. There was no sectarian identity to Tushreen. There was no class identity to Tushreen. You see these... It's one of the worst neighborhoods in Baghdad around Tahrir Square, you know, this very seedy bars, like no woman would go there during daylight, let alone at night. And you'd see all these kind of university, you know, girls and women walking the streets. At night, no one would be doing anything. It was just kind of a sense of solidarity, a solidarity between the poorest class of people who are the tuk-tuk drivers, these kind of motorcycle rickshaws, and the rich people from western side of the middle class families. That Iraqi solidarity that emerged in Tishreen was such a unique moment that even as Tishreen itself later fragments and uh, this uprising, this people demonstration doesn't deliver a political solution to Iraq. That remains as the moment when Iraqis washed away these, the residue, the sins, the ugliness of the sectarian civil war when, when they just poured into the street. And everyone agreed that the villains were... I mean, another chant which was very pro predominant is an Alabu Iran Labu America, is people in the streets were kind of... They didn't want to be trapped in this conflict between Iran and the USA. So 
they denounce both Iran and its interference in Iraqi politics, but also the USA and its its interference in Iraqi politics. And that is the new Iraqi identity, national identity, if we can talk about it, that had emerged. And there's, there is a conversation, as you say, you know, what Tishreen represented. If we think about it politically, today in Baghdad and Iraq, you still have the same leaders, the same politicians. In the book, you spend a lot of time looking at the Nouri al-Maliki, uh, who was the longest serving prime minister from 2006 to 2014. And you look at the system he built and, and all of the parties around it on corruption, and they're still in power. So how do you respond to someone who says that these protests, you know, they may have removed the prime minister, Adnan Abdel Mahdi had to resign, but they didn't really change the nature of that post-2003 system? I think we can't expect from a, from a protest movement to change the whole political system, a political system so entrenched by corruption and by violence. So no protest movement, yes, a protest movement can topple a president, but a protest movement can rarely change a entrenched political system. I divide the Iraq history of civil wars of the past 20 years into two civil wars. So a first civil war that starts in 2003-04 and ended in 2009 with the Sunnis allying themselves with the Americans to defeat Al-Qaeda. There was a moment, there was a moment in 2010 where actually the civil war in Iraq could have ended. Had we had someone not like Maliki, someone who could have reached out to the disaffected Sunnis, brought them back into into the folds of the state, not alienate them, there is an argument that ISIS could have not happened. But what do we have? We have a prime minister who believes in this kind of, in the saying, will never give power again. And he goes after the Sunni politicians. I mean, they're not angels, but they kind of could have brought back the society from the brink of another civil war. He goes after them. He targets the Sahwa leaders, the Sunni uh, uh, militias who align themselves with the Americans. And, and he built his own state and state built on corruption and fear. So he hands these big army positions to his allies, creating this fake army, you know, the, the corruption that Maliki enabled, plus his sectarianism directly led to the moment when Mosul collapsed, when the Iraqi army was defeated, when ISIS reached the, the outskirts of Baghdad. Now, that political system run by Maliki, by other commanders, by other uh, militia leaders and politicians is so entrenched and it's armed that no protest movement can go into the streets and try to topple it. And what did they do? They've managed to absorb the protest because that was the, the moment of fear. The moment of fear, you know, when, if I may use some sectarian terminology, when Shia kids from the poor suburbs of Baghdad demonstrate in the street carrying the banners of Hussein to be shot at and killed by other Shia militias and whatnot. That was the moment that threatened the whole sectarian narrative of the state. Those militia commanders cannot stand up and say, we are defending the interest of the Shia people because those are the Shia who are demonstrating in the street. And yes, Tishreen did not change the regime, but Tishreen is the beginning of a trans-sectarian Iraqi identity. And of course, on this, you quote in the book, you write, sorry, the real disaster will emerge when this generation grows up, a generation that only knows fear and sectarianism. Can you elaborate on what, what you're saying here in terms of this new generation when it grows up? 
So I think this is Ustad Ali kind of talking. And, and of yes. course, he, he, he was right, because at the time when I met him in 2007, 2008, he was pointing at those kids who were 12, 13, and pointing at them. And of course, this is the generation that grew up in the next 10 years to relive or to live through the whole ISIS um, uh, trauma that, that, that befell Iraq. So it's the people who, st- who were seven and eight in 2003 who became fighters in 2014-15. I mean, one of the one of the guys I interviewed in the book, he's a um, you know, special forces NCO, we're fight, fighting the ruins of Mosul, and we're talking about sectarianism. And he laughs and he says sectarianism in our neighborhood started with a football match between two teams, one of farmers and one of the landowners, one belonged to a Sunni tribe, one belonged to a Shia tribe. The kids between them in the football match started fighting. And the parents used outside powers to help them in the conflict, in the local conflict. So one tribe brought Al-Qaeda, the other tribe brought the Mahdi army, Sunnis versus Shia. And this is how you have a sectarian civil war. So a lot of the conflicts that raged in Iraq of the past 20 years are local conflicts. Conflicts between tribes, conflicts over land, conflicts over interest, but it it suits the players to borrow a huge idea, a big identity, a big sectarian identity to legitimize their uh, local conflicts. You know, the book also looks at the period of, of the coalition provisional authority and and uh, Paul Bremer, who became the sovereign of Iraq. Uh, and, you know, you write quite powerfully that no amount of planning could have turned a legal occupation into a liberation. And then before you'd write, because a nation can't be bombed, humiliated and sanctioned, then bombed again, and then told to become a democracy. And yet, Iraq today, you still have international actors, you still have the US, the EU, the UN, the UK, still trying to reach that point of democracy. So on your stories, how do you reflect on that? What, how do you sort of put that together that 20 years on, there still are these international actors investing in Iraq, in democracy, supporting, you know, initiatives, all of this. Do you see anything different? What would you tell someone like Bremer, but maybe now going to Iraq with this ambitious agenda to build democracy? The first thing I will say is accountability. I mean, 20 years later, after the Iraq war, none of the actors, the players, the people who perpetrated crimes, foreign or local, have paid for what they've done or have been held accountable for what they've done. No militia commander have been put on trial, let alone we don't have a truth and reconciliation commission in Iraq. You know, the Americans came, bombed the country, destroyed the the state as it is and left. And now they're sitting there ski instructors, painting or doing whatever. They were not held accountable for what they did. Nor the Iraqi politicians, militia commanders who are now sitting in the parliament were held accountable to the crimes they've committed. I'm not calling for vengeance or not even justice, just accountability, just to open the book of Iraq. You know, the first moment when I think I became a journalist, it was the day after the statue was toppled. It was when I walked into the presidential palace of Saddam claiming that I was a journalist. I was not. 
Why did I go to the presidential palace? I have no idea. But probably I thought if I go, if I walk through the corridors of Saddam's palace, I will understand why he did to us what he did, why he led us to one war after another, why he destroyed the state and rebuilt it in his own shape. He was not held accountable for that. He was put on a short trial, executed, victor's justice on a small case. We still don't know why did he invade Kuwait or why did he go into war with Iran. Same thing is happening now. We still don't know why things happened the way they happened in Iraq 20 years later. I want to know these things. I don't think we can have peace in Iraq unless those people are held accountable. So I tell this new Paul Bremer going to Iraq to rebuild democracy. To I mean, there are so many experts from international institutions going to Iraq year after year trying to reform, I don't know, the financial system, the custom system, the taxation system. And I would tell them, you know, you just kind of, I don't know, shoveling water and sea or something, because the state that we have now is a mutant state. Is It's called democracy. It has elections, but also has all the trappings of an authoritarian uh, dictatorship. So if we don't have accountability, we cannot reform the state. We cannot change the state. Tishreen tried to do that. Tishreen rejected all the politicians because it held them accountable to the crimes of the civil war, and it failed. So unless we have that fresh new start, I don't think there is there is a hope for Iraq. A friend of mine who is very close to some of the politicians in Baghdad says, as long as there's $40 million or $50 million pumped in the Iraq economy per day, maybe it's more now, this state will maintain itself because that oil money will be siphoned through whatever corrupt schemes to nurture and support these organisms that we have in Iraq. And, and that is the curse of Iraq. It's, this, it's a rich country that its people live in poverty. And on the final point then, uh, if we are to do a hypothetical, looking back 20 years later, what would Iraq look like today if the invasion and following wars had never happened? Would it be better or worse? You know, this is alternative history. And I, and I kind of, I sometimes try to kind of play this game with myself. To be honest with you, I don't know. There are so many different factors. Better or worse, I don't know. But maybe we wouldn't have had this societal fragmentation the way we have it. Maybe Saddam would have been toppled by his own clan. Maybe he would have been toppled by the army. Maybe it would have been a longer gradual change. Maybe Iraq would have been part of the Arab Spring in which the people would rise against Saddam. So so many alternatives. But I think the ultimate thing that we have to talk about today, 20 years later, is what is the Iraq that we have now? What is the, this country that was created by this invasion, the sectarian war? What is the shape of this country today? Ghaith, thank you. That was Ghaith Abdul Ahad. His new book, A Stranger in Your Own City, Travels in the Middle East, Long War, is available now. I've been Renad Mansour. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Iraq, Legacy of War, a mini-series by Intelligence Squared. Join us for the next episode of the series where Secunda Kamani is joined by a panel of three experts to discuss how the impact of the Iraq war fueled the rise of extremism and terror in the Muslim world and beyond. All episodes of Iraq Legacy of War are now available to Intelligence Squared Premium listeners. If you would like to hear the rest of this series now, ad-free, please subscribe in the link in the show description. This series was produced by Farah Jassat and Catherine Hughes. 
with artwork and editing from Catherine Hughes. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm Bea Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.